that was beautiful, he said, thank you. And man, I, I just love Chris's honesty and vulnerability up here. Has anyone else sinned this week? <laughs> and, and I'll be honest, up here preaching this morning, I feel completely unworthy. But that's the beauty of the gospel, right? In our weakness, in our unworthiness, he comes to us and showers us with grace. So, I'd invite you to turn, if you would, to Galatians chapter 4. I didn't think I'd start crying at the intro. <laughs> thought maybe at the ending or something. Galatians chapter 4 will be in verse 21 through 31. And I don't know about you, but there are certain passages in Scripture that after I read them, I'm like, what the heck is he talking about? Has anyone ever had a passage like that? Like, all right, I'm just going to keep going past that one. No idea what he's talking about. Um, this, for me, was one of those passages this week. And the first commentary that I opened up in my study, it started by saying this. Many people regard this as the most difficult passage in Galatians. To which I thought to myself, thank you, Todd. I appreciate you assigning me this one. The commentary went on to, uh, went on to say why it's difficult, and I fully agree with this. For, for one thing, the commentary says, it presupposes a knowledge of the Old Testament, which few people possess today. There are references to Abraham, Sarah, Hagar, Ishmael, Isaac, Mount Sinai, and Jerusalem. For another... The argument of Paul is a somewhat technical one. It's the kind of argument that would have been used and familiar in Jewish rabbinical schools, of which I don't have experience in Jewish rabbinical schools, and I'm assuming you don't either. Uh, so it was a challenging passage to dive through this week, and I'm hoping to share some things that I think the Lord might have for us in it. Uh, so let me just pray, and then we'll, we'll jump right into the text. Uh, Father, thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you that you come to us in our weakness. Thank you that you invite us as sinners to come to you, regardless of where we are, regardless of where we've been. So this morning, Lord, would you give us ears to hear your truth? Would you give us eyes to see Jesus more clearly, what he's done for us in the gospel? And would you activate and motivate our hearts to respond, to not just be hearers of your word, but, but doers of your word this morning? We pray these things in your powerful name, Jesus. Amen. So if you're new, I see a few new faces. Um, we've been tracking through the book of Galatians. And um, just to give you a quick background, there's, there's a church in the region of Galatia around 48 AD who was under theological attack. There was a group of false teachers known as the Judaizers who had come from Jerusalem, and they were trying to persuade these new Christians that they must turn back to Judaism that they must live in complete obedience to the law, that, that faith in Christ was not enough. There was something else he had to do. And Paul, quite adamantly in this letter, he's opposing this idea as it's completely contrary to the gospel. The gospel is the good news that Jesus has done it all. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. In contrast, the Judaizers were saying, you know, Jesus is okay, but you also need to do this. Jesus plus something else. You must do more. Faith in Christ, they were saying, is not enough. So that's a brief context. It brings us to our passage this morning where Paul's culminating. He's concluding a lot of the thoughts he's been presenting since the middle of chapter 2. And his tone continues to be, as you could see in verse 20, it continues to be perplexed. 
And if you look back to verse 19, he's in deep anguish for these people. So flowing out of his frustration as a means to persuade them away from the false teaching, he's going to give them a history lesson, turn it into an allegory, and then apply it right then and there to their situation. So if you're a note taker, that's our structure. Simply history, allegory, you and me. So let's pick it up in Galatians 4, verse 21. And we'll just walk our way through this. Paul says, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? So Paul here, his approach is to meet these Judaizers on their ground. Basically he's saying, all right, you want to talk law? Let's talk law. And to be under the law, just to be clear, means that you're relying on the law for your standing with God. If I obey, then I'll be accepted. Whereas the gospel says, I'm accepted, so I obey. So Paul's about to expose the inconsistency of their position. He's saying, if you want to be under the law so bad, why don't you actually listen to what it's saying? The very law that you say you follow contradicts everything you're saying. That's his premise there in verse 21. So Paul's about to take them on a journey back to Genesis, the first book of the law. So he's kind of playing on that, the different sense of that word there. So look at verse 22. He's going to take us back. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. So this, as you may know, is the story of Hagar and Sarah, right? Two women, one slave, one free, who had two sons, Isaac and Ishmael. One, Paul says, was born according to the flesh, the other through promise. So to be faithful to this text, let's jump back to Genesis chapter 15 so we could see that story in context. And then we'll import it back into our Galatians text this morning. So Genesis chapter 15, God comes to Abraham and tells him that he and his wife Sarah will have a son. Actually, a whole lineage of sons. The only problem is, at this point in the story, as you may know, Abraham's 80 years old and Sarah's 70 years old, and she's been barren her whole life. How on earth would a barren 70-year-old woman have a child? But as God so often does, contrary to what seems possible, he makes a promise. So look at Genesis 15, verse 5. God brought Abram outside and said, look towards the heavens and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Fast forward. Five years, they've been waiting. The promise was given. Five years later, still no child. And Sarah wasn't even pregnant yet. You can imagine what they're thinking. Like, has God forgotten his promise? And worse yet, is he unable to come through on what he promised? So Genesis 16, Abram and his wife grow impatient, and they take matters into their own hands. So 16, verse 1, let's pick it up there. Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. 
in Abram, rather than listening to the voice, the promise of the Lord, listen to the voice of Sarah. In um, 16 verse 15, here's the result of that. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore Ishmael. So fast forward to Genesis 17. This is 13 years after Ishmael's born. God comes to Abram again and reminds him of his promise. At this point, 18 years prior. Genesis 17, verse 15. And God said to Abraham, he had changed his name at this point, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. And I will bless her. And moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her. And she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell to his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. But God said, No. But Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for your offspring after him. Then Genesis 21, if you flip over a few chapters, the promised son Isaac is born. Again, 18 years after waiting, Isaac's born to a barren woman who's 90 years old. And we would all say that's impossible. But here's why Paul brings the Galatians back to this story. Paul's highlighting the fact that Ishmael, the slave son, was the product of human effort and self-reliance. The product of human effort and self-reliance. Ishmael was born when Abram stopped believing God's promise and took matters into his own hands. Instead of trusting God, Abram relied on his own power and ingenuity to get the son that he so desperately longed for. Whereas in contrast, Isaac, the free son, Paul says, was born by a supernatural, unbelievable work of God who is always faithful to his promises. No matter how impossible or improbable it may seem, God is always faithful to his promises. So here, Paul's setting up the history. We have Hagar and Sarah, Ishmael, Isaac, slave, free. One born according to flesh works that we do on our own effort, by our own means. The other through promise, a complete and utterly indisputable work of God. Now, like Abram, how often do we not wait for God's promise and take matters into our own hands? We see a disparity of a situation in our lives, and we fail to trust God that what he said will come true, and it's easier often to take matters into our own hands. Human effort, self-reliance. I don't know about you, but I often rely on my own capabilities, especially when it seems his promise is delayed. Often I lack trust in God that he'll actually lead me, and I act on my own. I rely on myself. And the results, as we probably know, are never good. So back to Galatians chapter 4. Paul's presenting here quite a brilliant argument. One that would have captured the attention of these false teachers. Paul's showing through this Genesis story of Sarah and Hagar that there are two ways of being related to God. A right way and a wrong way. One that leads to slavery, the other that leads to freedom. 
This is crucial to understanding Paul's point here. He's pleading with these Christians to not follow the Judaizers back into slavery. Slavery of human effort and self-reliance, but to trust in Christ. To put their hope in Him for the freedom that is found. So Paul then pivots from history to allegory. Histories verse 22 and 23, allegories verse 24 through 27. And he infuses this Genesis story with a series of later Old Testament stories to further develop his point. So look at verse 24. Now this may, interp- this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. So we'll pause there for a minute. The two women he equates with two covenants, which is an agreement uh, between God and man. And if you look back through redemptive history, God established the old covenant through Moses at Mount Sinai, as the text says, and then later the new covenant through Christ. And here's how those two covenants differ. In the old Mosaic covenant, the responsibility was placed on man. You shall do this, you shall not do that. God laid the responsibility on man, and as we see all throughout the Old Testament, as man sought to obey, as they sought to be faithful to the promise, to the covenant, they would find that they failed. And at the end of their failure, they, they would see that they need, uh, they need a Savior, and they would put their hope in Christ. The law, as Todd has mentioned in, in previous sermons, was meant to expose sin and to reveal our need for a Savior. But the new covenant is not based on our adherence to rules and regulations. The new covenant is based on God's promise. It's not you shall, it's God says, I will. I will do this, I will do that. God, in the new covenant, keeps the responsibility on himself. So Paul is showing that the truth implied in the Genesis story, we can now see clearly in what happened at Mount Sinai, when God gave the law to Moses. Just as Abram tried to get God's promised blessing by his own effort and ability, so too did the Israelites at Mount Sinai. Instead of humbling themselves before God and trusting God and and relying on him for the help that they needed to obey, they took matters into their own hands. I can do this. I can do that. But as we see throughout the Old Testament, they didn't have hearts inclined to trust the Lord. Rather, like Abram with Hagar, They relied on their own resources and trusted in their own strength. So are you you getting Paul's point here? He adds yet another layer to the argument. Verse 25. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds with the present Jerusalem. So here's his additional uh, illustration. For she is in slavery with her children, but the Jerusalem above is free. And she is our mother. So this here is a direct attack on the Judaizers who had come from Jerusalem. Paul is saying that the present Jerusalem at the time where these false teachers lived, that's a place of slavery. Whereas the Jerusalem above, the the dwelling place of God where the Galatian Christians now lived, that's a place of freedom. Paul's plea to the Christians at Galatia is, do not follow these false teachers back into slavery. If you follow them, you're going to be an Ishmael, not an Isaac, a slave, not free. 
So then he goes on, verse 27, and he actually pulls in a quote from the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 54, verse 1. For it is written, for it is written verse 27, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. So as I was reading this week, at this point, I'm like, again, what is he talking about? There are so many layers and dimensions to this argument. I just honestly can't keep up. Um, But what he's doing here, this is a prophetic word uh, for the Jewish exiles in Babylon. So this is 600 years before Paul and 1,200 years after Abraham. And at the time, if you know the history, the the exiles had essentially lost all hope uh, that they would ever return home. They felt like complete failures, weak and helpless, while the nations around them looked strong and able. But God says to his people through the prophet Isaiah, Rejoice, O barren one. Rejoice, O desolate one. In other words, now and only now that you're helpless and hopeless, now that you have no ability on your own, it's now, precisely in your state of inability, that I, God says, will come with my power and strength. So rejoice. In the place of desolation, there's a promise of God that leads us to rejoicing. God's saying through Isaiah, and he's saying this to us today, that that weakness in inability is actually a great place to be. Because it's there that God can intervene with his supernatural wisdom and strength. You know, when we feel weak, we can often try to take things in our own hands. But when we're weak, when we're hopeless, when we're unable and helpless, it's there that God intervenes with his supernatural strength. It's here that he alone can do the impossible. A 90-year-old barren woman having a child and returning an exiled nation to their land. While the strong are, are too busy relying on themselves, God says, I will show you that's in the lives of the weak, the helpless, the unable, where my grace, wisdom, and power are most actively at work. Truth is, when God's in the picture, weakness and inability are actually a great place to be. It's a preferred place to be, as opposed to self-effort and human strength. So, pulling it all together at this point, we've got two women, two sons, two covenants, two Jerusalems, and an obscure quote from an Old Testament prophet. So, where will Paul go next, right? What's he going to bring into this next? He starts to apply it to the Galatian Christians. Verse 28, now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. Paul, as he so often does, he reminds the Christians of who they are. Despite what the false teachers are saying you need to do, listen up, listen here. This is who you are. Like Isaac, you are children of promise. God has displayed his supernatural wisdom and strength in you. You are not children of slavery. God has taken the initiative to save you, and as a result, you're free. So be who you are. That's Paul's point here. Don't be deceived by these false teachers. Stand firm in the truth of the gospel. You, brothers and sisters, are children of promise, heirs of God. 
And for those of us today in here who are in Christ, that's true of us as well. Children of promise. So, Melanie Park, let's not be deceived by any false teaching that would call us to be better, do more, try harder, get your act together. That's the heartbeat of religion, of false religion. That's not the gospel of grace. As those who are in Christ, our standing before God is not based on what we do. It's based on what he's done. We don't obey God's commands in order to tip the scale that he might approve of us and save us. We obey in response to what he's already done. And we're free to obey because of what he's accomplished. You know, as last week as Todd taught, there was one line he said that really stuck out to me. He said, religious people love to base their standing with God on rules and regulations rather than resting in a relationship with him. Religion is about what I've done, what I've achieved, whereas the gospel is all about what God has done, and as a result, what I've received. You know, it's not uncommon for religious people who just love to be righteous in their own eyes. When they look around and see other people failing, they love to point that out, don't they? Religious people tend to persecute those who don't measure up to their standard which is actually where Paul goes next. Look at verse 29. But just, just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh, Ishmael, persecuted him was, who was born according to the spirit, Isaac, so it is now. In Genesis we see there's a passage that speaks about um, Ishmael persecuting Isaac in Genesis chapter 21. The, the text doesn't go into detail, but, but at best he mocked him and he despised him. In the same way, the false teachers at Galatia were persecuting the Christians who were seeking to trust God's promise rather than rely on their own effort. And the same continues to be true today. Self-reliant religious people despise those who don't measure up. They look down on them. They talk poorly of them. And some of us in here today even find ourselves thinking at times of people like, what are you doing? Like, you're not, you're not doing enough. Come on, man, be better. Or, how could she do that? Shame on you. What a failure. I don't know about you, I can't see in your mind, but I have those thoughts sometimes. And that's the heartbeat of self-reliant, self-righteous religion. Not the gospel of grace. Religious people love to look down upon other people who don't measure up. So it's helpful to note one more thing here. Um, Look at the link between verse 29 and 23. Galatians 4, look at 29 and 23. It appears that Paul is equating born according to the Spirit, verse 29, with born through promise in verse 23. These concepts in, in Paul's mind are interchangeable. So if you look at verse 28, if you're a child of promise, then you're one who's been born according to the Spirit, right? So true Christians are those who have been made alive by the Holy Spirit of God. They're they're people in whom the Holy Spirit dwells. He shapes them. He leads them. He guides them. Christians, a.k.a. children of promise, have been supernaturally, miraculously transformed from the inside out. We've been made alive and given new life by the Spirit of God. I love that link there. 
We are children of promise because the Spirit has made us alive and has given us new life in Him. And Paul will continue that theme into his uh, next chapter. So Paul begins to conclude his argument by taking us back to, uh, back to Genesis, I'm sorry. In verse 30, he quotes um, Genesis um, chapter 21. So again, pulling in, taking us back to the story of Hagar and Sarah. He says uh, in Galatians 4 verse 30, but what does the scripture say? So here's Genesis. Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So here again, Paul's turning the tables on these false teachers. More than likely, the Judaizers were using this verse to justify their practice of casting out Gentiles. Get out of here. You're not good enough. Thinking that the thinking that they thought that the Gentiles were the outcast slaves, whereas the Jews were the free children of promise. But, but, but Paul takes this verse and he flips it on them. He says, no, 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 no. Hold on here. You, the Judaizers, are the ones who to be cast out. You are the sons of the slave woman, seeking justification through human effort and self-reliance. Paul boldly reverses this and applies the inheritance exclusion to the false teachers. They, the self-righteous religious people, they are the ones who will be forever left out of God's family. And in the church, both back then and today, we must never allow a false gospel of justification by works to be preached. There, there's no place for works righteousness and self-reliant religion in the household of God. We are people saved solely by the grace and mercy of God in any work that we do is in response to his. So verse 31, Paul concludes his argument here. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. So, so here it is, the culmination of thousands of years of history, making it into allegory, Paul applies it. We who live by faith in the Son of God and don't rely on what we can achieve, we are the ones who are truly free. Self-reliance is slavery. Trust in God's promise and power is freedom. You who desire to be under the law, trying to obey so you'll be accepted, your life is defined by bondage. You're the slave. Whereas we who are in Christ are the free. Does that kind of make sense to you? All right, so practically... What might the Spirit be saying to you and to me as we've read through this history, allegories, some obscure Old Testament quotes? What might God, what might God have for us in this? I, I think the question basically comes down to, do you want to live in slavery, in bondage to self-reliance, or do you want to be truly free, right? That, that's the question. Basically, this whole time, Paul's just going back and forth, slave-free, 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 those are the two options. Melanie Park, I'd assume that most of us would opt towards the free freedom, right? But, but sometimes, even in our Christian experience, we settle for far, far less. So let me, let me ask a few questions, and, and maybe with the Spirit, uh, you can kind of evaluate and see where, you at, where you're at today. Um, when it comes to justification, so you're standing before God, how God views you and where you sit in Him. Are you trying to earn God's favor by what you do? 
some of us in here, that may be the case. Trying to earn God's favor by what you do. Or do you rest in the truth that he's accomplished everything on your behalf? You know, if if you're in here today and you haven't surrendered your life to Christ, if you're still trying to earn salvation, perhaps the day you're hearing the Spirit just say, "Just, just stop. Just rest in me. Rely on me. Put your hope in what I've done, not what you have to do. Today, maybe he's inviting you to receive his gift of salvation and to cease striving. As an old hymn says, lay your deadly doing down. If that's you, I'd invite you today to just pray and talk to the Lord and ask him to open your eyes to see him. Ask him to soften your heart to receive him. Perhaps today's the day of salvation for some of us in here. The day we leave behind a life of bondage and enter into an eternity of freedom. So that's some of us. For others of us who have already been justified, right? We've, we've passed from death to life, from light, from, from dark to light. Um, God's intervened supernaturally in our lives. There's no, no doubt about it. For those of us who that's the case, and this is true of me, I often find myself reverting back to slavery rather than walking in my freedom, right? Does anyone ever experience that? Like, all this freedom, life, and joy has been offered to me, but I want to do it on my own. I want to rely on myself. I choose slavery rather than walking in freedom. You know, for, for some reason, even though I'm in Christ and the Father fully approves of me and accepts me, at times I feel like I need to live up to this certain standard that I set for myself. And when I fail, I beat myself up over it. You know, I, I feel an innate pressure to try harder, be better, get it right this time. Now, part of that's true, right? In sanctification, there's work that we need to do. Whereas justification is a one-way act of God, he's done it all. Sanctification, which is growing in Christ-likeness, I do work, but it's God who works in me. I don't rely on my own strength. I work in reliance upon his strength. But often, I revert back to works righteousness in my sanctification process. I think it all depends on me. I revert back to self-reliance rather than rooting my trust in God's supernatural ability to provide strength, wisdom, and power that I need. So my, my guess is in, in here today that many of us, myself included, need to repent of our self-reliance. Um, just to give you an example, just in my sermon preparation this week, um, I found myself not operating in faith, but operating in my own ability. Um, so I started Tuesday morning, Tuesday morning I did a few hours, and, and I'm driving back from where I was, and I'm like, you know what? I just jumped right into my preparation rather than stopping to ask the Lord what he might want to say. You know, and as I developed my structure, my my focus was on creating a well-crafted sermon that would impress you rather than sitting back, submitting to the Lord, seeking his direction. Lord, this is your word, not mine. This is your time, not mine. I found myself just absorbed in my ability to study, to write, rather than looking to God for the wisdom and insight that he alone can give. Then on Tuesday afternoon, it hit me. You know, I need to repent of my self-reliance and rely on God's wisdom and strength alone. It's his words y'all need to hear, not mine. It's his ability to transform lives that's far beyond what I can accomplish with a well-written sermon. So Tuesday afternoon, I stopped and prayed, kind of realigned, and um, 
my, my, my prayer at that point was, Lord, what would you want to say? This is not about me. What would you want to say? So, but then I started thinking, like, why? Why do I revert so quickly and easily to self-reliance and human effort? And what I came up with is, it's just easier sometimes, is it not? Waiting 18 years for God to fulfill his promise, it's way easier just to do it on my own. Sitting for an hour and just soaking in the Lord, asking him to speak, that's way harder than just getting to work on my document, right? It's way easier at times to take matters into our own hands and fail to trust in God's promise and his power. So this plays out in countless other areas of our spiritual lives, right? When it comes to our study of the Bible, we can easily take matters into our own hands. I'm going to interpret this rather than let it interpret me. I desire to master this book, to know it more and more rather than letting it master me. You know, it's easy to try to stay in control of your Bible reading rather than letting the Spirit do His work because that's scary. It's easy to control what you read and and how you interpret it. It's much harder to just submit and say, Spirit, if I let you do what you're going to do, I don't know what you're going to ask me to do. Same is true of prayer and other spiritual disciplines. We often operate from a posture of control rather than surrender. So even as Christians, as Todd mentioned last week, it's easy to revert to ritual rather than relationship. We're way more comfortable, it seems, following a pattern of religious activity rather than abiding deeply with Jesus. Formula is preferred over faith. We find ourselves growing in knowledge but not necessarily love. And our motive in following Jesus is often what we can get out of the deal. So I don't know if any of that rings true of you. It certainly rings true of me. And I just want to ask you two questions that that I've been just wrestling through this week as I prepared this sermon. Here's question one. Do you think at times that your wisdom and inability is more efficient than God's? Abraham sure did. Do you think your wisdom and ability is more efficient than God's? And here's the big one for me. Do you prefer to be seen as strong and put together? Or are you you okay being seen as weak and needy? Do you prefer to be seen by other people as strong and all put together? Or are you okay being weak and needy? Being seen as weak and needy? I prefer to be seen as strong and put together. And that's an indication that I'm trusting in my own ability rather than God's. So, you know, this morning there's freedom and admission of failure and weakness. Slavery is trying to hold it all together. Because the truth is, like the exiles, it's actually in our failures and insufficiencies, not in our successes and self-sufficiency, that God can come to us and lift, lift us up with his grace. When God's in the picture, it's the barren, not the fertile, who have children. It's the weak, not the strong, who find strength. And it's the broken, needy prodigal who's welcomed home as the self-reliant older brothers left outside. So family, the gospel invites us to repent of our self-reliance and to put our hope, to put our hope and trust in Christ alone. He's all we need in our initial salvation, and he's all we'll continue to need as we grow in Christ. So let's come to him today in our weakness, in our failure. Again, I love how Chris set it up this morning, admission of failure. He couldn't have set it up better. Maybe that was the Holy Spirit setting it up. 
Let's run to Christ today for the wisdom and strength that he alone can give as we cease striving and as we stop self-relying. Here's the point. If you miss nothing, if you catch this today. Just ending the sermon in weakness. Just just modeling it all for y'all. Here's the big idea, the main point. True freedom is found in trusting Christ. Self-reliance, trusting in your own abilities, only results in slavery and bondage. So I'd invite the band up now. They're going to lead us in one more song that reminds us this. Some truth in the song is that if you're hurting and broken, if you're weak and needy, the Father's arms are open wide. It's those who know that they need Jesus, that aren't relying on their own strength, that he loves to come and be with. It says forgiveness is offered, even for those today who are resting in our own reliance. Freedom is offered, forgiveness is granted, so let's stand together as we come to him today.